कर And welcome to Writer with Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and this is a special episode about writing motherhood and mental health with writer mothers Alicia Elliott, Liz Harmer, and Megan Leonard. Please share your thoughts and questions with us in the comments section, and we'll weave them into our conversation. And I'm honored now to introduce Alicia, Liz, and Meg. Alicia Elliott is a Mohawk writer whose essays have been nominated for National Magazine Awards and whose fiction was selected for Best American Short Stories 2018, among other honors. Her first book, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, was a bestseller in Canada and the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2020 Forest of Reading Evergreen Award. She's working on a novel and lives in Ontario, where she has one 14-year-old son. Alicia describes writer motherhood in three words as difficult, meaningful, confusing. Liz Harmer's first novel, The Amateurs, received starred reviews with Publishers Weekly and The Quill and Choir, and was a finalist for the Amazon Canada First Novels Award. Her second novel, Strange Loops, is forthcoming in 2022. She writes about love, madness, motherhood, and religion, and she's working on a memoir on her experiences of psychiatric crises and treatment. A Canadian living in California, Liz has three children, ages 9, 11, and 13, and describes writer motherhood in three words as challenging, interesting, deep. Megan Leonard is the author of Book of Lullabies, a collection of poems that explore mental illness and new motherhood through the lens of fairy tales, Disney princesses, and labyrinthian language. She teaches writing through the Connors Writing Center at the University of New Hampshire, and has been a mental health advocate for more than 20 years. She has four children, ages eight, five, three, and eight months, and she describes writer motherhood in three words as playful, adaptive, messy. Now, please join me in welcoming Alicia, Liz, and Meg. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thank you all for joining me. Um, we have a full house here tonight, so um, let's get started. So, um, again, thank you before we start for being brave enough to join me and to talk about an issue that is often ignored and, um, uh, yeah, often ignored in our society, mental health, especially for mothers. And we'll talk about that a little bit, but before we do, um, I'm going to ask each of you just to tell me why this topic is important to you. What What's your personal story? What brought you here? And we'll start with Liz. Hey, thanks, Lara. Um, so I just want to say, first of all, I mean, it's important, I think, because it's so stigmatized still. Like, I still feel the effects of that stigma, no matter how um, sane I appear to be. There's still, like, a feeling of... Um, my if I if I transgress and I don't seem mentally healthy, it feels like I'm doing something wrong and other people are judging me. So um, anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. That does feel kind of scary to talk about it because there's such a strong stigma. Um, so I'm writing a memoir, which is about when I was 17, I had a pretty severe crisis of depression and anorexia. It led to a long manic psychosis that let, led me to be in the hospital for about six weeks of my final year of high school. 
Um, and then kind of figuring out what all of that meant and what the diagnosis I received meant and whether I should stay on the meds and how to care for myself. All of that has been kind of my life's work. So I've been writing about that ever since that was like t- over 20 years ago. And, um, I've also experienced pretty severe postpartum depression. So the mothering part, I have three kids and only with one of them did I have uh postpartum depression. And it was uh, one of the most difficult things I've ever gone through. And so um, talking about that and destigmatizing, that's really important to me as well. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about postpartum depression. We'll talk about all of these issues that you've brought up. Um, and thank you again, because um, as I said at the top, it takes a lot of courage to come on and talk about something that, um, that there's a lot of stigma around, unrightfully so. So, um, so thank you for your bravery. And so now um, let us hear from Alicia. Alicia, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Uh, yeah, so it's a little bit complicated because, um, uh, basically I, um, my mother had, um, bipolar disorder. Uh, she was di- diagnosed with different things uh, throughout my life. Um, and I, I, I'm fairly sure her most recent diagnosis is, um, schizoaffective disorder, which is, um, bipolar disorder with schizophrenic elements. Um, and so I was kind of, um, mostly being cared for by her. Our, our family was very traditional in terms of like my dad went out to work, my mom stayed home and raised the kids. And so we, um, you know, we dealt with her having this mental illness and saw it, it in front of us in ways that um, really shaped, I guess, how I felt about, um, about the world, I guess, um, and seeing the ways that, you know, um, uh, she was, criminalized in in certain senses as well um, for having mental illness. You know, there were times where like there was one time in particular where like she was, um, you know, tasered in front of uh, my young siblings while we were on the res. And this was because she has a mental illness. And so, um, you know, this kind of um, uh, binding up of, um, you know, uh, mental illness with criminalization um, with, uh, you know, using in some senses the police to deal with us, you know, in that certain sense. And so I, I saw that growing up and I, I wrote about that in, in my book that um, of essays, uh, Mind Spread Out on the Ground, talked about my mother, talked about uh, mental health. And at the time I wrote it, I had only really experienced um, depression and anxiety, um, really like bad depression for years. But then, um, you know, uh, I had a mental health crisis actually last year, um, not even a full year ago. And um, that basically was me um, having a crisis of uh, mania and psychosis that um, ended up where I ended up in the hospital, um, uh, mandated there by the court, um, by my siblings. And so it was a very complicated thing. Um, You know, I'm still kind of dealing with the fallout of that in terms of like how my family sees me, despite the fact that we all grew up with a mother who had mental illness and um so it's it's kind of complicated. Um, and I'm uh, the the novel I'm working on now actually talks about um, psychosis and what it's like as a mother, um, particularly having postpartum psychosis and um, things along those lines. So um, that's kind of where I come into it, I guess. Yeah, thank you, Alicia. That's a lot too, um, especially having a mother who is dealing who was dealing with mental illness and then um, must have been traumatic to have witnessed um, what you did as a young child. So thank you also for your courage in speaking today. 
and we'll definitely come back to the criminalization of mental illness. I'm taking notes here. If you see me looking down, that's what I'm doing. Um, and and I think the, the phrase that you use, having the police deal with us, quote unquote, is so telling in that, um, yeah, especially with, with mothers and the criminalization of mothers with mental illness. That's something that we've all seen in, in the news as well. So um, so thank you. Meg, same question to you. I love your podcast, Laura, because of this use of the word monster. And I feel like motherhood is this space where how our society defines what's healthy and acceptable is so narrow. And I feel like the mentally ill mother and the selfish mother are the two tropes that show up in media and movies and songs and writing as the two things that are like the most monstrous that a mother could be. And of course, writers to some degree have to be selfish or perhaps it's more accurate to say they're seen as selfish. So I feel like being a mentally ill writer mother has the potential for this monstrosity um, that 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 really interests me. I noticed when I became a mother, so I have a long mental health history. I had multiple hospitalizations in my 20s. Um, I was very ill as a teenager, you know, sort of did better in my 30s, but mostly because I had lots of therapy and lots of support and knew my own illnesses better and knew how to manage them better. Um, I have four children. The oldest one is eight. The youngest one is eight months and I had postpartum psychosis after my first and fourth children and then just sort of a run of the mill, run of the mill postpartum depression after the second and third. So, you know, I had, I have this long mental health history. And what I realized when I became a mother was that like all of my friends, um, know this about me. Most of my friends are also people with complicated mental health histories. And when I became a mother, suddenly that part of my identity Um, I felt all of this pressure to be quiet about it. I felt like if I talked about it too much uh, with other mothers, that that would be scary to people or might make them think twice about being my friend or think twice about me. Um, And I was interested in how this one identity as a mother made this other identity that I was pretty comfortable with sort of unravel in terms of my public comfort with it. Um, I feel like we don't have a lot of models for healthy, mentally ill writer mothers, right? If we think of mentally ill mothers who write, we think of like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. We don't think of the women who survived and wrote, you know, dozens of books. and 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 so I'm interested in sort of, Um, having these conversations so that we can talk about what healthy writer mothers with mental illness might be and and how that's possible. Um, And I'm also just interested in talking about how these monstrous identities like mental illness and selfishness are not monstrous and are actually just part of being human, um, including mothers. Like the two, the two do not have to be in opposition to each other. Um, so when I was writing my book of poetry, I was interested in those identities and how they hide each other and subvert each other. Um, 
And so I was excited to learn about your podcast. And I'm so happy to be here today because I feel like this topic is one that touches a lot of writers and a lot of mothers. And I think our our collective feelings around it are not going to shift until we talk about it more. Yeah, thank you, Meg. That was really eloquently said. And I should have said at the top of the show that you, Meg, actually came to me with this idea and helped me craft the episode um, around motherhood and mental health. So you've brought so many amazing um, ideas and questions uh, to this moment where now we're all gathered to discuss. So thank you. Um, it's really important and I very much appreciated. So this is this is a great group of, of strong, um, monstrous in the best way, women. <laughs> and I'll share, um, I want to keep the focus on, on you all as the panelists, but just in the sake of transparency, I also struggle with anxiety um, and depression. And having had a child, I think, raised the stakes for that, where they're so where you kind of realize how much there is to lose and how easy it is to um, to lose the things that you love and how fragile um, how fragile your children are. And that definitely, for me, raised the anxiety level. So motherhood and anxiety and mental health for me are also very entwined. Um, so that's just putting that out there. But I want to come back. So now let's talk. I think, Meg, you gave us a good launching off point with with monstrousness. Um, can we talk a little bit about monstrousness and about the stigma, as Liz named it, around mental health, specifically for mothers? Who wants to take that and run with um, Before, I mean, I don't really, I don't know if I have anything to say about that, but I just love what you said, Meg, about um, healthy, healthy mothers who also have mental illness, like those things coexist. Right. And I think that was a really, I just loved that point. So thank you for making it. Um, yeah, the monster thing. I mean, I feel like there are people in my life who think I'm a monster. Um, despite it doesn't kind of matter how, how well I do and like how stable I am and like how, um, how how good I am. It seems like some people have decided that I'm I'm a monster. Um, it's pretty terrifying um, to ke- to come out from under that. And so um, I don't have much else to say about that except that. Um, I mean, I guess one thing that I think is really useful is that because I've gone through these things, um, I'm less afraid of what might happen to me. And I'm less afraid of the kinds of judgments I might receive since I've received them all. And so in a way, it's like very freeing because I can I can be bold in ways that um, maybe would be frightening if I hadn't gone through those things already. Liz, how does that come out in your work? That boldness? <laughs> well, I'm just not I'm not hung up on being on apologizing for being selfish, selfish, or like choosing art, because for me, art um, or being a writer is like a very important part of how I cope and make sense of my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it doesn't seem to me like a selfish act. It seems like like an important thing that I do. And and I choose that as a healthy choice for myself. Um, So I guess that's one way that it comes out. Yeah, I think that um, for me, also, um, just thinking about um, the ways that, you know, I had in certain ways when I was younger conceived of my mother as a monster when she was um, 
manic, for example, or when she was super depressed and like couldn't get out of bed, you know, like the, those kinds of things you don't understand as a child, particularly when, you know, you have uh, for in my case, uh, a parent who is basically telling you all of these things like you need to look for this, you need to look for that. So like basically I was kind of like policing my mother's mental health by, you know, like, oh, you got to make sure that she like if she isn't sleeping much, if, she, if she's doing this, she, you know, all these different things that made it so that it was kind of like this carcerality kind of imposed into my head in terms of how I conceived of my mother. And um, I never really had a chance to, I think, um, really reckon with that until I was um, until I was writing um, particularly an essay about her specifically in my book. And it was then that I was kind of um, trying to reckon with, um, you know, this way that I had conceived of her as like someone else entirely when she was sick. And then um, and I had to like push that to the side and not think of that. And then, of course, you know, um, having to deal with, like then having been on the other side of that now, um, it, it gives me uh, like this this really I guess difficult, but um, uh, necessary, I suppose, insight into kind of what was happening with my mother at the time. And um, and also the ways that in many senses, my father and and just the systems that were around us all the time had failed her in terms of um, giving options, like giving the idea at all that you could be healthy in, in any sense while you have mental illness, um, not th- like, you know, um, it just it just felt like there was no model for that for our family to kind of base this base things off of. And so we kind of fell into these patterns that I think are still very much there. At least I saw them when, I, you know, I had mental illness and saw how my siblings reacted. And it was like, I could see very clearly have this like thread line, um, which I think, you know, we as a society, despite how many years um, we've been, we've been aware of mental illness and uh, there has not really been any significant changes. I don't think since um, basically, you know, the madhouses essentially um, it's just, and it's, it's just kind of been conceived as this is how we deal with people. And it's just been kind of, I don't know, I guess, um, illuminating to kind of think of that and now to kind of put that into my work um that kind of awareness now that like double-sided awareness of of being on both sides of that um as a mother um myself and as uh, the daughter of a mother who had mental illness seeing ways that like um I was encouraged to to think of her societally and within my own family and then seeing how people were to frame me once um it was clear that I had mental illness in very similar terms despite you know there being 30 years difference between when those things happened. Yeah. Um, Alicia, I wonder, forgive my ignorance in asking the question, but I, but I wonder what it was like for you growing up on, you said you grew up on a reservation Um, in, in, in that rarefied society. um, Did you notice differences in the way mental illness was addressed or not addressed um, as compared to where you live now you, you said you're in Canada I think right California yeah, yeah. oh no I'm, I'm, I'm in Canada, Canada. I'm in Ontario. Canada like, <laughs> Canadian um yeah uh, yeah I think it's important to note that I didn't like grow up on the res I moved there when I was in grade nine and so I had a significantly different experience than my siblings who were much younger and spent most of their lives growing up on the res um but it was uh, I would say that you know we were in a very particular situation because my mother was not in, not indigenous she was white and my dad just moved us there and didn't 
do because he has like he has been very abusive to her in the past and, so, and including moving us there to begin with. He didn't do anything to make it so that she had legal standing there. So she basically had to hide that she was there the entire time, essentially. Um, and uh, if you know anything about the way that um, reservations in Canada work as a result of the Indian Act, there are um, they made it so that uh, if you like, there's, there was a period where if you were an indigenous man and you married a, a white woman, that she would gain status and then therefore she would be able to live on the reserve. Whereas um, if you were an indigenous woman and you married a white man, you would lose status and all of your kids would lose status and you would basically be forced off the res. So this is the way that kind of sexism was really embedded into the Indian Act. And that affected my family because right before um basically right before my parents got married, they had changed it. So she didn't have any status there. And so, you know, that meant that because she had no status, she was not supposed to be living on the res. So it, all it would take was really someone to find out she was there and be mad at my dad and then report it to band council and they could send a letter evicting us basically. So we were in kind of like a really precarious situation um, considering, I don't know, I guess the historical context that we were set into and also all of these other things. So, you know, when um, it did make it very difficult because, you know, there was, um, you know, I would I would say that my I would say that there were ways that, you know, my mother being so precariously there made it so that um, when she did have mental illness, it was like we have to get her. We had to we couldn't take her into like Bradford, for example, to get um, help without it having to be something we would pay for. Instead, we would have to literally drive her to Buffalo. And then um, my dad would um, have to basically call the cops on her and um, get her put in as like a threat to herself into the hospital. And then um, that's kind of how it went. And so it was kind of this constant kind of trauma. I remember us like sometimes we would have to like all the kids would have to be in the car so that she wouldn't get out of the car while we were driving on the highway and things like that. And like, so just these ways that like, you know, um, I think that my dad really was very aware of the power he had in that situation and how he could kind of get her out wherever, but there were, because of the situation, it was more complicated to get her there and to put her into the hospital or whatever he needed at that time. Um, so yeah, it was just really a complex kind of situation, um, in regards to that. And I, I don't know, I, I think that in many ways, um, I, as a result of, you know, um, intergenerational trauma and all of these different things that it's, we don't, like to talk about mental illness on the res, you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of like, that's, you put it to the side, you know what I mean? Like we're all, we've all, we're all dealing with our things and we have to, or not dealing with our things, <laughs> like with our issues. And, um, and that's not what we talk about. And so it was kind of like this idea of silence kind of um, really reinforced through the places that I was in and like the historical context, I guess, that I was placed into. <laughs> or yeah. found myself in, I guess. Yeah, different layers of silencing, like not just you know, womanhood, but being on a reservation, indigenous culture, the context that you were living in. Um, that touches on something that Meg noted, I think. Alicia, your your word power, mm-hmm. um, the power that your father had in that situation, the power that the um, the authorities had to step in and try to, I guess, manage um, 
Meg, that I think leads into monstrousness and some of the power dynamics that you mentioned as well. Can we talk a little bit about power and powerlessness of women's, particularly mothers, when it comes to mental health? Alicia, one thing I loved that you said that I think is so important is you talked about how the systems failed your mother. And in her case, it was many layers of systems. And I think this is such an important I think for those of us in this conversation, that seems very obvious, but it's such an important thing to name because I think there is this thing in our culture, especially around um, postpartum depression, but around a lot of other mental illnesses too, where we view them as individual crises and we, we view the treatment as individual. It's a pill and it's therapy. Uh, there's something wrong with the individual's mind. And this is very similar to how our society currently treats new mothers. It's very individual. You know, people are parenting in silos. They're not with their families. They're not getting time off from work. They're not, you know, we don't have these big communities who bring us hot meals. There's nobody to hold the baby at night. Um, mothers, even if they're married with great supportive partners, are very, very isolated in a way. And... and their their challenges are individualized in a way that's very similar to how we individualize mental illness. And I think these, this allows us as a culture to not look at the way the systems are failing us. Um, and they are failing us as mothers and the systems are failing people with mental illness. And it's so much more so for people who are people of color or queer or living in poverty. We know that the system's actively um, actively make marginalized people ill yet yet we persist in believing that the the problem is in the individual mind where the problem can only be solved with this sort of individual treatment instead of thinking about how do we radically change these systems so that women have more support when they have young children so that people with mental illness have more support. Um, so I really, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think that's crucial to the conversation. Absolutely, thank you, Meg. Um, and and that leads us to, um, I think the importance, as you said, of naming issues and of defining terms. So let's take one step back and just define what we mean by postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis for people who don't know what that means means and talk about new mothers experiences with mental health specifically who wants to take that one um i mean i I had postpartum depression but to be able to define it would be very difficult for me to do um i could talk about my experience um i have very complicated um, relationship to my diagnosis because i rejected the diagnosis i received when i was a kid and so part of what I've been exploring this whole time is trying to figure out what happened to me if it wasn't this biochemical thing. And so I've been reading a lot about, yeah, like systems and like ways that families can can create these problems or like the way that lack of resources or certain kinds of stresses can exacerbate mental illness. And so um, and so I have three kids. I wasn't on medication for any of them, um, but only with one did I experience the depression. And so this is part of my the mystery for me of like what it means to be on a spectrum, like to to not have like a a clear idea of what it what it means for me to be mentally ill. 
Um, so that's my caveat. And so as a result of that, I was used to taking a lot of responsibility for my own illness as an individual. So when I became like bereft, um, I kept describing myself as shattered. Like I couldn't get through a day. I could hardly walk. Um, every day just felt like a mountain I was climbing. I remember one way I was thinking about it at the time was like, oh, here comes nine o'clock again. Like I just, there was nothing, like I just had to get through it. And, but I couldn't get the rest I needed. So I think postpartum depression because of hormones. So people who might be vulnerable to hormonal fluctuations or, um, lack of sleep, in addition to all of the other anxiety that comes with being a mother, um, I believe that's all, you know, that sets you up for the possibility of having this. And for me, because I was in this confusing relationship with psychiatry, like I couldn't, they wouldn't put me on antidepressants because antidepressants can cause mania. So I couldn't get the kind of help that maybe I needed. Um, and so I kind of suffered alone. I feel like I kind of am lucky to have survived it because when I look back at how desperate I felt, it was not, it was, it might not have been survivable. So, um, so that went on for a year for me. Um, so I think, I think for me, that was just, yeah, like an experience of not feeling like I could be a good mother and the feeling of not feeling like I could be a good mother, somehow making my mothering worse. And so that you into these guilt, shame cycles. I don't know, Meg, if this is, um, if this connects for you at all with your experience, but. Yeah, I had a very similar thing and I, I really appreciate you saying that you're that you're glad you survived it because it was potentially not survivable because I feel like that is one of the things that mothers are sort of not allowed to name. Um, it's like once you become a mother, it's one thing to say, oh, I have the baby blues and they put me on Zoloft and, and, mm -hmm. and that is really hard. But it's sort of like, it's like right here in terms of like acceptability. And then if you talk about being so unwell that, that it's a miracle you survived, that's the sort of thing that like, we don't say at dinner parties, you know what I mean? Like people are really uncomfortable with it sometimes. Or, or perhaps it's that, that we perceive people will be uncomfortable with it. I feel like, that's my, I feel like I'm afraid to say those things a lot of the time. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm just so glad you brought that up. I had a very similar experience after my first was born. Um, I think a lot of my severe, I actually, I had postpartum OCD, which was interesting because it helped me understand my lifelong OCD in a completely different way because it was so magnified. So in a weird way, it ended up being almost like a gift. I sort of hate to use that word because it wasn't a gift at the time. But but now at age 40, having survived it, I feel like that experience allowed me to understand my own mental health in a new way. But it was it was so extreme and it lasted well over a year, which goes outside of the typical diagnosis. And for me, it was a lot about um, I was I was back at work two weeks after I had my baby. Now I worked from home and I was working part-time, but I was working two part-time jobs, so it was a lot of hours. Um, I wasn't sleeping. I didn't have people to help me with the sleep part, and I feel like a lot of what made it so dangerous for me was things like I wasn't eating well. I wasn't sleeping. I didn't have people to talk to. I hadn't met a lot of uh, friends with young children yet. 
Um, it was this isolation and, you know, this longstanding ambivalence with the psychiatric, uh, community and, and professions because I had a very long mental health history. So a lot of what you say, I don't know, I just really, it really moves me and I had a very similar experience. And I think what you were saying earlier, Lara, about power, when someone feels like they can't trust the potential care providers or when they feel like they have to be alone with their symptoms because if they say the wrong thing, it's going to trigger a chain reaction of responses. Or if they say out loud to their friend how desperate they are, um, you know, that, that that would be entering in the taboo and somehow. Like that renders a person powerless when you can't speak any of those truths because of all of those very legitimate fears. So, yeah. Yeah. Alicia, would you like to add anything? Um, I think it's hard for me to talk about um, anything to do with postpartum stuff just because, like, I was a teen mom. And so uh, when I um, gave birth to my son, it was um, a month and a half before I was um, supposed to be going to university. And I was very fortunate in that my um, my partner's mother was um, willing to basically take care of our child while um, we were going to university. And so we were coming home every weekend. And for the first six months, I guess, um, I was still trying to um, basically um, pump breast milk. And so like, um, you know, I was like 18 at university and um, trying to figure out how to not tell people that I couldn't go out because I had to be home to press to pump breast milk every four hours um, and like figuring out how to constantly get back so that I could do that and then like put it in this little freezer and then be able to take that back on the weekends. And um, so it was like very isolating in a different way, but um, it also was kind of um, difficult in that I felt in many ways a lot of guilt um, for not being there with my baby, even though I knew that like, we were trying to make it so that we could have a better life ultimately um, for our son. It was, you know, one of those things where I just felt so much shame um, that I just didn't tell anyone um, anything. And so it made me kind of isolated and um, uh, in my like university and in my residence that I was in, I didn't really talk to anyone, um, was just nervous of talking about any of this stuff. Um, and so for me, it was just kind of like, isolating in a different way, but I, I, it's hard for me to know necessarily, um, I guess, because I was so young, what, um, what was going on with me mentally and how much of that was like, um, situational and how much of that was, you know, other stuff. So it's like, I don't know, sometimes it's kind of depressing to say, but I just feel like, you know, um, for so much of my life, I've dealt with, um, depression. And so I, it's hard for me to like, be able to, point my finger at something and say like, this was a time where I wasn't depressed, essentially, which is like terrible to have to, like, I don't know. It's, it's, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. No, that resonates with me too. Like what would it feel like if it were to go away? I, it's interesting to think about. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about support and all of you, I think have mentioned in different ways that you felt the lack of, a, well, in some places, a, a 
a broken system that was actively moving support away from you. And in other cases, um, a lack of support from family or friends or people who understood what you were experiencing. Um, how important is support? Have you found um, support, I guess, since you've become mothers? Have you found communities that, that you've that you've entered into or created for yourselves that have helped with, um, with surviving to Liz's point. Um, I guess I, I, because I, I got, because I, I had my son so young, um, it kind of set me apart from a lot of, um, the like, mommy groups basically that were kind of around at the time. A lot of the women were older than me and kind of, um, there's always this kind of judgment of um, young mothers. And so that was definitely something that I felt. It was definitely something where, you know, like even um, with my son growing up, like we, we have an apartment. Um, the other people that were in his classes were like in their like 30s established and had houses and like we've never had that. And so, you know, um, uh, having to kind of deal with like that sort of stuff, I think, has been um a little bit, I guess, difficult in terms of not feeling support because there is this like inherent judgment and, um, you know, having a child when before you're of a certain age that I guess society deems is appropriate um, at any given time. <laughs> you know, it's always changing, it seems. Um, but, um, you know, I, I don't know that necessarily I had support in that same way. Like we did have, um, like I mentioned, my my partner's um mother which was she was uh very supportive but like there was always this kind of underlying fear that um she might not let us have our son again um which like is something that unfortunately like sometimes was like when we would be fights or something like that it would be something that would come up and so it was constantly like me having to worry about being considered um an appropriate mother enough for a court to give um access to my child to or custody of my child to and like that kind of thing constantly playing in the background. I remember when I was um, when I was first pregnant, um, we decided I decided to have my baby in a birthing center on Six Nations because I was terrified of um, the Brantford General Hospital where um, it was like it was common knowledge that young teens um, from Six Nations who had babies, they had CAS like which is the the child. aid society, basically social services, um, outside of their door as soon as they were born, um, asking questions or taking kids, especially if they had any kind of involvement themselves when they were child children with um, social services. And we did have um, that in my house. And so I was like terrified of that. Um, and so that was kind of another thing where like you have these kinds of this, this fear of kind of policing of um particular racialized communities um, and their ability to be mothers at the very like at the drop of a hat. And um, so that was kind of like something that was kind of also difficult, I guess, to navigate. Um, I'm, I'm just glad that in that, you know, my family has always been supportive of me as a mother. And my dad was like, my dad was there every single weekend to pick us up all the way from Toronto and drive us home and then drive us back on the Sunday night. So like we were, I was just really glad that he was there to do that. Um, and, you know, like there, my dad is flawed in a lot of ways, but he also is someone who is like, really, really supported me in a lot of other ways. And so, you know, that was something that was 
helpful when I was feeling otherwise isolated and not sure how I was going to be able to fulfill my role as a mother while I was kind of trying to do these other things to make it so that society would see me as someone who should be a mother and would be able to have my child. Yeah. Thank you, Alicia. Uh, This is a point that Meg brought up before the show and um, you've led us into it. This, the way in which this mirrors how women writers are often working in isolation and without structural supports in Meg's language, um, which affects their ability to create and reach an audience. So let's switch over or or pivot a little bit to the writing and how you see um, the things that Alicia really beautifully pointed out playing out in um, in our careers as women writers. wants to start. <laughs> I mean, but Liz has something to say. I mean, I have a kind of a funny, to me, a funny anecdote, which was that I was reading over my psych records as part of writing my memoir, and they're always looking for delusions of grandeur, and so they would constantly find me writing a novel and calling me grandiose, like I was having a delusion of grandeur. <laughs> um, you know, so like, I really was just always writing novels, and so <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a delusion, it was just what I did. Um Yes. So um, with the writing, I mean, in my case, um, I feel like my family was really supportive of of writing. Like writing was a really important thing. We were kind of I call us shabby intellectuals because we really didn't have much money, but we had a lot of education. And so that's possible in Canada. I don't know if that's really possible in the States in the same way, but um so we, I just, there were always books around. My mom was a librarian. My dad was an ele- elementary school teacher. And so writing was really important and, and kind of valued. And I felt like um, when I went, when I had this episode that everybody kind of had to recover from it, it became, I, I'm interpreting it at this point as like a trauma. So it wasn't just, it's not just that the trauma can exacerbate the symptoms, but the thing itself causes a secondary trauma, I think, um, you know, the breakdown itself and all the, all the treatment and then coping with the treatment. Um, so while that was all going on, everyone was kind of just not sure what would happen to me. And I kind of felt like nobody expected anything. Um, you know, they w- we felt like we would be lucky if Liz kind of got got her degree. And that was, you know, so, so I kind of felt left alone to figure out my ambitions. So to me, that was like a, a kind of blessing with having had this crisis, which was that, um, you know, I could just go ahead and and do my thing because no one expected anything from me. That's maybe not fair to my parents, but that's kind of how I feel about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, Meg, um, this was your, I think, your point to make. So I want to come back to you and ask you if you want to talk a little bit about how women writers are um, working in isolation and how that plays out. I think I've been thinking about this a lot because I had a baby in the pandemic and my book also launched in the pandemic. And in the poetry community, we talk a lot about being good literary citizens. And practically speaking, what that often means is um, buying each other's books and going to each other's readings and promoting each other on social media and inviting each other to to speaking events and, um, you know, networking to be on panels and things like that. And I feel like this group of people will understand when you have a young child, that becomes impossible pretty quickly. And when you have a mental illness, that becomes uh, impossible for different reasons. So I have started noticing in my own life how much I have to say no to 
because I have to go to bed at nine because my baby's going to wake up at five. And if I don't get enough sleep, I am going to be in a bad place with my mental health. Um, or, you know, uh, perhaps I find networking so exhausting and it takes such a toll on my mental health. So even if it's something I enjoy, it might be something that I have to limit to some degree. Um, all of these other ways that we, we in the poetry community, it tends, tends to be kind of small. So I don't know if this is true in, in your writing circles as well, but we put so much emphasis on kind of this work uh, that people do behind the scenes and women, especially, you know, a lot of it is about kind of the way we use our relationships to promote our work. And I've just been thinking about how um, I, I just can't do a lot of those things. Things like residencies, like I can't go to a residency. I've been breastfeeding somebody or pregnant with somebody since 2012. So like basically my entire thirties. So right at the time when I'm supposed to be trying to like promote myself and get out there, you know, I'm, I'm sustaining other people with my body and it's time consuming, you know? Um, so I don't, I don't know how to solve that. I think one way to solve that is to make things like writing conferences and residencies child friendly. That would be huge. Um, you know, there's, there is no residency that I know where you can bring a breastfeeding infant to the residency. Um, so that, like, that's something. I went to AWP when I was really pregnant with my first and I haven't been back to one because it's too hard to travel far away from very young children. Um, so, so making things child friendly would be one thing. And then I think recognizing that literary citizenship is going to have to include people with mental illness and chronic illness and other disabilities. And in order to include everyone, there has to be space for uh, just recognizing that not everybody has the same energy levels or that staying up late to get stuff done can mean very different things for different people. And, and and that can shift for individuals over time. But I feel like right now we're at a point where we're just, as a writing community, starting to recognize that things that we label as working hard or like hustling are actually just keeping out anyone who doesn't have um, uncomplicated health. So I'd like to see those things change. Um, and I think that that will help women and I think that will help women with mental illness. Um, so hopefully, you know, this can be part of that conversation and, and we can all start shifting our thinking um, around those things. I love that, Meg. Thank you. Yeah. And I agree. I've heard a lot of women on this podcast talk about residencies specifically and um, fellowships and how these are often months or two months long experiences. And like maybe I've just gotten to the point where my daughter's five and I'm like, maybe I could go away for like two weeks, maybe. But a month? No, like it's it's definitely um, it's different, I think, for mothers. And as you point out, particularly with for mothers who are. Um, who are experiencing or living with mental health challenges. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Um, I just also feel like um, one of the things, too, that is 
I mean, complicated, um, particularly when you're dealing with mental illness, um, is, uh, the, is having to do like up in Canada, we have like festival circuits when you're promoting your book and things like that. And you're, you know, always expect it. Like, this is the thing where people don't really talk about the fact that like, you know, you write a book and you're just supposed to write a book, but that's not how it works. You have to promote it. You have to be on, you have to be, you know, um, in some instances, like, um, people ask really inappropriate questions, um, audience members or other people on the panel, or you have to deal with like other people saying things that are super, offensive and the the impact that that kind of has of you having to like, you know, keep smiling the whole time and um, make sure that you're viewed as professional because, you know, to show any signs of weakness or to show any signs of, of anger or anything like that. Like these are things where you again would be considered like monstrous as just a woman alone or as someone who has mental illness. But then on top of which, you, you know, if you're a mother, there's all these other things too, right. Where, you know, people have these kinds of expectations where, what, you know, what are you, what does your family think about this? You know, what is, where, where's your son right now? You know, all these kinds of things where like there's these, they're, they're projecting these kinds of societal shames onto you and you're just supposed to kind of smile because, um, you have to sell books. Um, so, um, I think, you know, that's just something that really is, um, difficult. I know that when I was, um, touring my book, uh, there was, um, you know, there was a lot that was going on in terms of me having dealing with depression, but also trying to like push myself to do all of these things. And then also there was like, you know, a lawsuit that was, um, launched against me, which made it so that I had to, like I had to be, I was terrified of people asking me about it, um, or, you know, um, of talking about anything that might in some way refer to that and then making myself liable in, in that way. So like, <laughs> you know, there's like all of these things that I don't think people really think about in terms of, um, how they're making spaces for, um, writers in terms of, um, especially if we're writing about things that are very difficult. There's this expectation that we are, we should, we should always be like, you know, slashing our wrists open and letting everybody see all of the mess. Um, and, and, you know, and, and that's, I, I feel like, you know, some, in some ways it's like, well, we chose what we wrote about specifically because we felt comfortable writing about that. So when you're asking all of these deeper, like these questions where it's like, I didn't write about that for a reason, so, you know, mm-hmm. but we're, but we're still going to try and like dig that out of you. Um, it, it's just kind of, I don't know, kind of gross and appropriative or uh, exploitive, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's something that for me, I think people don't really consider those things. Um, or like, you know, what it means to hold someone who's, who's trying to talk about their work that's very difficult and that has a lot of, um, personal things kind of blended within it, I guess. Yeah, and we talked before the show about the way that the this industry industry reinforces um ableism by and again to use to use your words, panelists, um, by not treating our work on these subjects with care and respect. So I think Alicia, you're getting at that too. Um that there's a sense that if you put yourself out there through through your work that people have permission then to to dig at wounds and to ask you to play yourself in public and um I wonder if they ask the same and I don't know I'm I'm just putting that out there I wonder if if the same request is made of men um you know who write about mental illness I feel like there's sort of like a um like that's literary right if men write about mental illness 
what do you guys think about how it's perceived when women write about mental illness? And we talked about monstrousness and shame and like, there's definitely a disparity there, I think. (laughs) Well, I mean, Alicia, I think you have something to say, but I was just going to say like the problem of being taken seriously as a woman is like compounded by being a person who's perceived as mentally ill. I mean, it's just, you know, being credible, people taking seriously what you have to say about your own experience about anything um, is a big problem. So, yeah, that's all I have to say about that, Alicia. Oh, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, there is always this sense that men have more authority on whatever they're speaking about, that they have more control over themselves. You know, just the idea of women as, you know, um, having like hysteria, this whole idea of madness that is specifically female and um it has its roots in being um in women you know this 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 whole notion of this is is really you know so prevalent in our culture it's hard to not see it wherever you look you know this idea of how you know when men break up with women oh they're my crazy white ex-wife my crazy ex-girlfriend that's always the case you know it's whereas you know you don't so you don't as often hear people like saying, oh, my crazy boyfriend or my crazy ex-boyfriend, even if they were, you know, abusive in different ways or, you know, hurting, like, you know, there's just this this idea of like a certain level of harm that is acceptable to lobby towards women. And, um, you know, if women respond to that in any way, then they're crazy. If they have any sort of emotions that aren't just like smiling, um, docile kind of um you know, this this version of like submissive femininity, then we're crazy. So automatically there's always this this kind of um, uh, idea kind of lodged against us. But then when you on, on top of that, when you actually uh, have, you know, a, a severe mental illness or any mental illness, really, um, then that like also lowers your credibility to a certain extent where people don't believe anything you're saying. You know, um, even people who are close to you, they're always seeing you as um, as someone who they can't trust. Um, they can't trust your perceptions of what's going on around you. They can't trust your memories. They can't, you, you know, and and then mm-hmm. that kind of makes you war- wonder about how much you can trust your own memories or how much you can trust your own perception of the world. It, it, it kind of creates this sort of um, self-fulfilling prophecy where you're kind of like mired in this um, in this doubt um, about yourself and about your worth. And, you know, I, I really do believe, too, that like the literary industry just does isn't doesn't make space or um, provide, uh, you know, the respect and care necessary for um, the works of uh, especially mentally ill women. Um, you know, there's this notion that uh, we have to, that, you know, our, pro- that our books are products and we have to be able to sell them to people. And there has to be some sort of like pitch for it um, in terms of like, well, who wants to read about um, a crazy woman? You know, no one wants to read about that. Um, and And so it's just kind of like, I don't know, really, it's really gross. <laughs> just kind of, I don't know. It's just, yeah. No, I really relate to that, Alicia, because I think we do see both motherhood and mental illness in women as put in as sort of like a niche subject. When the reality is we all, every human has mental health. And we have mental health days that are great, and we have periods of time when our mental health is 
less strong, even if it doesn't cross over into the line of a diagnosable mental illness. We all have mental health. It is a universal experience. Mm. And almost all of us have mothers. Like, <laughs> yes, there, there are people who don't have, almost everyone came out of a womb. Well, I guess everybody came out of a uterus, perhaps not belonging to a woman. But do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is how we all got here. We all mm. have some relationship to motherhood, mm-hmm. whether it's an absent mother or a painful mother mm. or a loving, wonderful mother, whether it's mothering our own children or imagining, um, you know, how we might mother other people. Like we all have a relationship to motherhood. We all have a relationship to mental illness mm-hmm. yet the book marketing industry pretends like this is a niche thing. And if you say like, Oh, I wrote a book of, of poetry about motherhood, you know, pe- people will go like, Oh, like, like Sharon Olds. And it's like, well, you know, there, there've been a lot of people who have written about this, <laughs> like <laughs> not just one, <laughs> like, yeah, it's fascinating how how both motherhood and mental illness is used to discredit women and how writing and writing the truth about this or, or a truth, writing our truth, is a way to push back against those cultural beliefs that would discredit us. Mm-hmm. And there's a real fierceness to that. And I think this is why... I love reading motherhood stories and I love reading about women who have experienced mental illness, even though it can be very painful to read sometimes because the very act of putting it out there pushes back against this idea that it's unimportant or uninteresting or not reliable. Like you were saying, Liz, that we, we somehow can't be experts of our own experience. That's BS, you know, and and I love these spaces like this conversation where people take the time to say, like, no, like, that's that's a load of crap. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to just add one thing, if I can, to that. Um, I love what you both are saying. And I was just thinking about how rebellious I felt to that notion, like becoming a mother was so transformative and weird. Mm-hmm. And like, what's more interesting than that? Like. I can't think of like a so-called masculine topic more interesting than that, you know, like, I mean, I guess war, war and mafiosos. I mean, I don't know, like the, I'm trying to think of masculine topics, race car driving. I don't know. But like, <laughs> those things don't interest me as much as like what happens to your mind. Like, first of all, like a psychotic experience, a, a feeling like something has happened to your mind and other people aren't in the same, no longer in the same world that you're in. I mean, that is like, incredible thing to go through and and motherhood is also a transformative experience and I just don't it doesn't even make sense to me to think why would that be diminished or like uninteresting like it's just is interesting inherently you know anyway that's just my my thing about that no I I want to keep going here I I was about to say that's such a great place to like to bring us, but I don't want to close. So if you guys are okay to stay on just a little bit longer, we'll keep talking. And there's an echo. Oh, there we go. Um, yeah. So I think I want to take us for a second on, it's not really a tangent, but it's a tangent from the writing side. And I think it was Megan in email who mentioned Britney Spears. Um, and I feel like this is just a really timely conversation also given the publicity of, um, Britney Spears' testimony in court recently, I think it was 
over the weekend um, about her conservatorship. Conservatorship? How do you you say that word? Yeah, and about and I think it speaks to all of the things that we're discussing here about trust and about trusting a woman's perspective on her own mental health and her own lived experience. Um, so let's talk just for a second about that example. Um, and Meg, since you brought it up in an email, do you want to start with just why why you felt like that was something that we could talk about today? And I think it is. It's timely. You know, I'm getting credit where it isn't you. I, I wasn't the person who brought up Brittany, oh, yeah. but I'm so glad somebody did. <laughs> so yeah. Because, was it? Was yeah, it? Alicia. I'm so sorry. Yeah, Alicia. <laughs> oh, no, that's okay. Um, well, I think the main thing, too, that I think is um, what I think really resonated with me, and I think a lot of also um, other women who have mental illness, um, uh, was the fact that her conservatorship made it so that uh, she had to get an IUD implanted, and they would not allow her to marry or have any more children. Um, and the way that that kind of ties into this idea of eugenics and um, the the what, whether women with mental illness should be parents or our ability to parent um, and be mothers, um, not only mothers, but also productive, because then you had, you know, they, on the one hand, this conservatorship was making Britney so that she was working over 10 hour days all all the time to make all of this money for the conservatorship and to, for these people who were profiting off of her. And yet at the same time, you know, she can do all of this. She can be on these sets for hours and hours a day. She can do um, months long residencies in Las Vegas, but she cannot um have another child she can't you know what i mean she can't that that's something where she should not have had children to begin with is kind of the the idea that i think is implicitly being implied there and i i don't know that like you know i i think that because she's so famous and this has happened to her it's shocking to some people in a sense that maybe have never had to really deal with you know um the ways that court systems and the ways that um, polices and carcerality kind of um, come into play with mental illness and in terms of controlling mentally ill people, specifically women and also racialized people and, and other things, you know what I mean? Um, and even just like the ways that, you know, we don't really, I, I don't know <laughs> whether um, people are looking at this and they're saying, yes, this is so terrible. And then they're thinking, I don't know whether they're actually thinking about the fact that all states that I'm aware of have laws about where you can um, force someone into the mental hospital um, outside of their will. That's definitely the case in Canada Um, and all of the provinces. There's, um, you know, form twos or different things like that. You know, I know when my, you know, siblings um, uh, put forward a for a form two for me, they hadn't even spoken to me in weeks. I was not um, asked to go to the judge. I could not defend myself in any way. I didn't even know any of this was happening until I was arrested. And so like, this is the kind of stuff where, you know, we talk about things like this stuff that's happening to Britney, but we don't I don't think we're doing enough work as a culture to really interrogate what it is, the assumptions that are underlying the situation that make it so that we have to. Um, so that we so that other people who are not famous and rich and resourced like Britney Spears and, and privileged in those certain ways. What are we having to deal with? You know what I mean? Like, what are the assumptions that are put into law that make it so that 
you know, we are not able to make decisions on our on our own, even if they're bad decisions. You know what I mean? Like, I think we all probably have friends who have made terrible decisions and like whether, that's, um, you know, or, or people in our lives who have made terrible decisions and they're still allowed to do that. And yet, you know, mm-hmm. if you're mentally ill and you decide that you want to do something that people other people determine is not OK, then they can force you to do that. Um, the, the kind of um, I, I don't think a lot, enough people are really talking at all either about the ways that, you know, we were talking about. um you know, defunding the police and things like that. But we aren't I don't think there's enough attention being paid to the fact that most of a lot of the people who are being killed, um, even in terms of like indigenous and black people in the states and Canada are people who had like um, who had the cops called on them for mental health issues or mental health checks. And the fact that they're considered monsters immediately and therefore it's okay to kill them, not only because they're racialized, but also because they have a mental illness and they're somehow dangerous or more dangerous than other people, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, all these statistics that make it very apparent that people who have mental illness are much more likely to be the victims of violence than to be perpetrators. And so, you know, this I I feel like there's so much (laughs) there and I've talked about a lot. (laughs) Kind of like take a step back, but yeah. Like these things are all kind of intertwined. And I, I I just really think that if we aren't looking at what these bigger, like kind of standout cases say about the society that we're in and the assumptions that we make, the laws that we have, etc., then we are failing in some sense to really do justice to this topic and all of the other people who are not getting the same attention as someone like Britney Spears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for for suggesting that we talk about her because it is it's it like you said um all of these issues are kind of coming together in this one really hyper um hyper visible example. Um but you're right, it's there's a sense of spectacle involved too because she is so well known and people are interested but are they interested because it's important to change the laws and the systems that are in place that that have led to this point or are people interested because because it's Britney Spears and they want to read about her testimony in court so I agree there's a lot of work that still needs to be done and contextualization that needs to happen right and Alicia I think this speaks to something that I have noticed about uh, women and mothers in particular in and it's that we're sort of allowed to occupy this very narrow space around difficult subjects. So like, it's kind of okay to talk about or write an essay about a miscarriage, but nobody wants you to write an essay about 12 miscarriages. And there are women who have 12 miscarriages. And I feel like mental illness is like that where like, I, a lot of the narrative I've seen around Brittany is that she shouldn't be in this position because look at her, she can do all of this work. And if she can do this work, she should be able to make these decisions about her own body but the real the the real thing is that anybody should should be making decisions about their own body. There shouldn't be a point where we say like, well, that person doesn't get to. Or with the police brutality, it's it's even if someone is having a enormous mental health crisis, they still do not deserve to be shot. So, and and I think about this in terms of of writing, and I love that both of you are bold enough to write. Um, some autobiographical things. I I don't write a lot of autobiographical stuff, even though I approach mental illness in my poetry. Um, And part of that is because I myself struggle with this window. And what, what can I say that will put me out of that window? 
I'll, I'll share a brief story. After my first child was born and I had this horrible postpartum experience, when I was pregnant with my second child, I went into my midwife's office and I said, okay, you know what? Like I had a really, really difficult time with mental illness after my daughter was born and I want to get ahead of this. I want to have supports in place ahead of time, you know, but my biggest fear had been that if I was honest with my practitioners about how I was feeling, that I would be forced to take medication I didn't want to take or that I would be separated from my child because I would be hospitalized. And so I was talking to my midwife and I was saying, like, do I have to worry about that? I don't. I don't want to lose that autonomy. And she was like, no, of course not. We would never make you take medication if you didn't want to. We would never, you know, make you be hospitalized if you didn't want to. And I was like, oh, thank God. Now, you know, now I, I can be honest with her. And then she said, well, unless, of course, you know, you were suicidal or thinking of hurting yourself. Then we would make you take medication and we would hospitalize you. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. So now I'm aware of my window and it's small. Mm. Like I can be honest, like right here, but everything out here is very risky to tell someone who could help me because in asking for help, I could lose autonomy, not only over my own body, but also with my relationship with my infant child, who, for me, I, I think for some people, um, having time away from their baby to rest and recover can be really healing. For me, just because of what I was experiencing, being separated from my child, even for a 72-hour hospital stay, would have made things so much worse. It would have would have been absolutely, uh, it would have made things so much worse. So, just knowing that I I couldn't be honest with my care providers and get help that I did think would be helpful because I would lose my own ability to advocate for myself in asking for help was, I mean, it was ridiculous. Like this should not be the case. This is, should not be how we're treating women with mental illness. Um, and so I, I, I like what you're saying about, you know, Brittany is this big example and in some ways she's a sympathetic example. A lot of us grew up with her. We grew up listening to her music and we can see that she should have autonomy over her, her own treatment and her own body. But that truth really needs to be applied to every person with mental illness, no matter how extreme their illness is. Yeah, I see Liz um, holding something back. or Liz, <laughs> what do you want to say? I mean, I just don't know if I have that much to add, but I was thinking about how I was, you know, I was told I shouldn't have children at some point when I was very young. Mm -hmm. I just had the diagnosis and I was, you know, I was just being told like what the course of my life was going to look like. And it was not going to include children if I wanted to be safe or careful or good or whatever. Uh, obviously I rejected that. Um, but I feel, I do feel very, I do feel very distressed by the news around Brittany and it's partly the way people talk about it. That's hard. Um, like I was, I was trying to watch something on the news about it and I had to turn it off because this lawyer was like, Oh, we might, I mean, we'll have to see how she, how she performs mentally. And I'm like, what, like, what would she be able to do that would prove to you that she, now that she's been proven ill, mm -hmm. like no one can see her. Like it's, it's, um, I've had that experience, you know, where people, um, before my diagnosis, you could have a day where you were feeling jubilant or excited. And afterwards, that's a symptom of mania. And so now I can't behave in, in, in any way or I'm being watched and 
my symptoms are being sort of reported on. Um, it's not, it's a very, it was just really painful to, to watch and to think about and just the IUD thing. And yeah, knowing how I just, it's unbelievable that <laughs> the whole thing is unbelievable. The social, the social situation, the fact that you can't, um, I remember being very careful about what I told my doctors around birth because I wanted certain kind of psychiatric care, but I didn't want to raise red flags. And so it was like, if you talk about anxiety and depression or like your former eating disorder, those are kind of like, oh, we can deal with those. Just get more rest. Here's some vitamins. You know, here's your anxiety support group. If you start talking about psychosis and and more serious illness, you you lose that credibility and you, and you no longer have that kind of control over how you're treated in those situations. Um, yeah, so it's all kind of flooding back to me a little bit, but um, I'm glad we're talking about it. Thank you for sharing that, Liz. Um, and you used the word perform, which I think is it, it's it really ties into what Meg was saying here and what Alicia's been touching on. Um, that you said the lawyer in the courtroom said that they will have to see how Brittany performs, you know, mentally. So. Can we talk about that word perform? And and I hear you saying that there's a level of um, a very understandable um, aspect of performance when it comes to to healthcare and motherhood. That you have to there's a line that you you shouldn't cross, and if, in order not to cross it, there's maybe some performance that you're 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 navigating, right? Could you talk a little bit about that word performance? Uh, do you want me to elaborate? Or oh, you... Yeah, yeah. Let's start with you. Since you, you um, <laughs> oh, something you just said, and now I just like kind of lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely feel that. Well, another. I mean, I guess I think about passing a lot because I think a lot of people in my life don't know that I have this history, and when I talk about it, I I start to feel like I'm testing to see whether people are going to be too alarmed or. You know, as, as it is with any kind of passing, you'll overhear people saying things that are like horribly ableist. And, um, you know, it's very shocking and upsetting to hear. And you think this is what people think of me like. Um, and so I was thinking, I guess, about, um, you know, the ways that I have been sort of unconsciously strategic. And one of those things is that my my partner is um, a white cis man who's very successful doesn't suffer from an, any mental illness at all and is able to very much be my advocate and ally and is able to speak for me when people won't listen to me. And so I was just thinking a lot about how um, finding a support person or a person who's able to to resist all of those other things happening, um, all of those other people who mean well, who are maybe doing you a disservice. Um, yeah, so I was just thinking about how that's part of the performance of my life, you know, that that partnership is is a resource for me and it and it protects me. You know, I don't know if that's helpful. I just went off on a total tangent. Sorry. No, every this is all helpful. <laughs> don't even you don't even need to ask. No, I love that. And Lara, I'm so glad you brought up or or pulled out this word performance because. It's making me realize there there's so much performance of wellness when you live with mental illness. Um, and there is also so much performance in motherhood, unfortunately. I think it's, yeah. it's really hard to step out of the performance that our culture requires of us when we're mothers. And I really see writing as something that dramatically resists 
both of those types of performance in that when we're authentic in our writing, even if it's not telling our own story, just when we're authentic about motherhood in our writing or when we take up space as mothers who write or when we take up space as people with mental illness who also choose to mother, um, that it takes away some of this this power that the requirement of performance has. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that we're talking about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, and I just I'll just add really quickly too that um sorry my dog's just like getting trying to be like you haven't paid attention to me for a while. Um, but uh anyways, um I, I think that another aspect too of um of you know thinking through like performance and all of that is is the ways that you know um that everything is okay i feel like in terms of um how society sees you if you're um if you're performing your job in terms of how you fit into capitalism in in many ways and so you know if you're um you know uh, hitting your deadlines, if you're doing these things or, or whatever, it doesn't really matter what's happening to you outside of that because you're doing those things. Um, and, you know, um, the ways that if you are, for example, having a mental health crisis and you need time off work, what does that mean? Then um, are you going to actually take that time off work or, or do you have not have the money? You know what I mean? Like these are the other the other ways that these things kind of all fit into one another, I think. Um, and I do believe um, that, you know, this idea that we all have to be constantly performing um, under capitalism and, and things like that and making sure that we're making money and making sure that we're spending money and all of these these different things um, in, in a lot of ways contribute to that stigma. Because if we're not doing that, then we're hangers on, then we're, you know, we're burdens then we're, you know, all of these things. Um, and, you know, I, I, this notion that we if we are too mentally ill and we can't make money and, and, and all of those things, then we have less value um, to society um, in general and, and not just like, you know, talking about value um, in terms of, you know, social value, but also like literally um, economic value and, um, mm-hmm. and, and the ways that those kinds of all kind of fit together. Um, you know, what would it look like if, you know, we, we not only had kind of maternity leave, but also we had this ability to have paid mental health time off, you know, these sorts of things where we're like, I don't know, when you start thinking about the ways that we can't actually care for ourselves because we are stuck in this like wheel, um, you know, it, it really does, I think, make matters worse, um, especially if you're, you know, a working mother who has mental illness or not a working mother, even like just someone who, you know, working in terms of, you know, um, I'm not saying that, you know, women who are stay at home moms aren't working, but, you know, the way that we conceive of work and these very particular terms. Um, so I, I think that those things all kind of c- contribute in, in, in a different connected way as well. Absolutely. And I think, um, we are so I know we're coming to a close, but I want to come back to something we talked about at the beginning and what what a healthy um, writer, mother, monster who lives with mental illness looks like. What what is what can that look like? Tell me your your vision for for a healthy writer, mother, monster. Liz. <laughs> oh, you can always tell when you can read my face. <laughs> it's a curse. It's been my curse. 
Um, well, I mean, I, this has been something I've been working on a long time because I was um, very afraid of my emotions. So for me, what's really important is um, a healthy expression of emotion and accepting that emotions are healthy to express. And so even negative emotions, um, being distraught, being angry, um, things that are frightening to others, we don't find those frightening in our family. And so to us, it's sort of like being able to have a narrative around emotions that that gathers them all up and says, hey, this is what it is to be human. There's nothing to be alarmed about, because I think sometimes that um, that stuff can just build. And so I think for me, the gift of being a person who's a healthy, mentally ill person is that I can I can find I cannot be afraid for my kids in the same way because I can I can love and see them and not be afraid of symptoms that I might perceive and that kind of thing. Thank you, Liz. Alicia, I saw you ready. No, to I don't. I don't have anything. <laughs> I feel like I'm still trying to figure out what that looks like um, in a lot of ways. Um, I know that through my experience, one of the things that I was always worried about is um, what would happen if my son had a mental illness as well, and. You know, I think that if nothing else, um, the experiences that I've gone through have made it very clear to me what um, someone needs in that situation um, and what someone doesn't need in that situation. And so for me, I just um, I think that, you know, me going through that and being able to turn, I guess, um, those negative experiences into wisdom and um, and I guess help me figure out how to then approach others um, who are in those similar situations. So, you know, not just thinking about it in terms of um, me as an individual, but what it would mean to be a good community member um, who, you know, is aware of these things um, happening with other people all the time (laughs) and and being able to, you know, know how to advocate and and things like that. So I guess I'm I'm still figuring it out, but (laughs) yeah. So figuring it out is, I think, a good place to be. That's where we all are, right? Endless um, work. And Meg? I think for me, one thing that um, I love to think about and that really helps me feel grounded in health is when I let myself believe that my mental health and my writing life are not in competition with each other. And that my writing life and my children are not in competition with each other. And that my mental health is not in competition with my children either. Um, that, that I can attend to all of these things. Um, that I can attend to my mental health and take care of myself. Like I said, that might mean, you know, going to bed early and, and not going to a reading that I feel like I should go to or whatever. Um, I can attend to my children, even if it means, you know, maybe I miss out on some writing time that I wanted. I can also take some writing time and let my children watch TV for the afternoon if that's what I'm needing. That that these things, that there's space in my life for all of it, that I, that I don't have to choose or put these things in competition with each other. And Alicia, what you were saying about capitalism really resonated for me because I think for me, when I start thinking that there is not enough, uh, that there is not enough time or not enough of me to live as a healthy, mentally ill person and a poet and a mother, 
It's usually because of these embedded capitalist beliefs that have me thinking I need to produce more poems. I need to, I don't know, somehow be doing something with my children that I'm not doing, that I need to be more outwardly productive in some way that goes against my mental health. And when I can um, release those ideas and uncouple them from my own belief system, then I do find that um, living in that space of health is really um, fulfilling and really very possible. So I really appreciate that you said that. Thank you all so much. I think those are some great words to end with. And I really appreciate you and all of you, your honesty and your bravery. Um, be willing to speak to these experiences and this truth. It's so important, this conversation. Um, so thank you for joining me and having it. Thank, thank you. you so much for having us, Laura. I cried. Oh, I know. You guys have brought tears to my eyes. Like, I'm tearing up here. But um, <laughs> stick around for a second afterwards so I can say goodbye. Um, but in the meantime, thank you all for joining us tonight. Thank you for your comments. Um, panelists, if you didn't see comments from um, our friends here who are watching on Facebook and YouTube, take a look in the chat and see the love that poured out there toward you. And, um, Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next, maybe not next week. I think it's the following <laughs> week <laughs> for another episode. And um, happy 4th of July weekend. Thank you all. Goodbye. <laughs>